Welcome to Check the Showtimes. I'm Matt. I'm Sarah. And we're here to talk about the newest in movies and TV. We did a radio show together in college, and now we are starting a podcast together. Give our thoughts and opinions on the best and the worst of all new movies and TV. Let's talk a little bit about us before we get started. We're both from New Jersey. Mm-hmm. We're engaged. Yep. We went to college together. And high school. And high school. And we've been watching, I don't know, probably two or three new movies in the theater a week. For, for the, the last... Past. Eight years. Eight years. <laughs> it originally started as just us liking movies and wanting to go to the theater and then became almost a completist attitude. Turned it's, into a minor obsession. Yeah, we kind of see everything. We we watch everything and we we're able to weigh in on all the award ceremonies and all of that stuff at the all end of, of the year. All of our friends and coworkers come to us for recommendations. Right, so exactly. We, we figured why not just centrally share all of our thoughts. We get asked about it and, you know, you're expected to give your thoughts on an entire season of TV or a three-hour movie in a 20-second snippet. And I think that this will give us a chance to really talk about it. Yeah, I think that we offer a unique perspective and neither of us are film critics. We're nope. just regular people that compulsively go to the movies. That's so, true. We're hoping to bring you a relatable take on movies and shows that you may want to watch and maybe a few out there suggestions for you to, to seek out. Yeah, and I think that what we will do is we will preface each episode with exactly what we're going to cover and tell you specifically whether or not we're going to be doing spoilers or anything like that. If there's something that we like that's a little independent, we might not spoil it and we might give you a call to action and say you should go see this movie in theaters and otherwise we'll get in depth. So this week we're going to talk about Stranger Things Season 3 and we're going to talk about Euphoria Season 1. We're going to go full spoilers on both. They're both fully available for you to watch. Mm -hmm. So if you have not seen it, go watch them, come back and get our thoughts. Or if you don't mind having it spoiled for you, we'll, we'll go in depth. We'll tell you exactly what we think. Stranger Things is Netflix. Euphoria is HBO. If you haven't, everyone's heard of Stranger Things. I don't know that everyone's heard of Euphoria, but that's on HBO. So let's start with Stranger Things season three. Okay. So before we get into the plot, why don't you tell me really quickly what your expectations were going into season three? Like medium expectations of this season, Mm -hmm. just because season two, I felt like was... A substantial decline from season one. I really enjoyed season one. I was hoping that they were going to redeem themselves from that, and I was interested to see how they dealt with the kids being... A little older. A little older, kind of breaking into the teenagers rather than kids that they were in the first and second season. I completely agree. Uh, Originally, when we were talking about watching this show, I had kind of not really liked season two that much. And just, this is going to basically be my catch-all for our entire discussion of season three. I think this is the best season. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to, you know, there's the lead to the discussion. I think that this season was the best season. I had the most fun watching this season. I laughed the most during this season. Yep. I picked up the most nostalgic 80s movie elements, which obviously we both really like because we're both a big fan of 80s sci-fi and horror. Yeah. So this was, I thought this was the best season for me. Yeah, I agree. Um, Excited there's going to be two more seasons. Has that been confirmed? I read that they sketched out five seasons, and I I don't see why they wouldn't do it five. It's so popular. Right. I mean, they clearly want to do more. This does not resolve everything. There will be more seasons. Yeah. Yeah. I think the best way to go through this story, there's so many characters now. Yeah, and we're trying to tackle the whole season 
in one episode and not just ramble on. So I think the best way to do it is to sketch kind of the characters split up into individual groups throughout the seasons. Yeah. And so the way that it works is there's a few different subplots that kind of break off and, and do their own thing. Obviously, if you've watched the show, you know this. So I want to start specifically with what sets the tone for the season. And that is kind of the villain taking its place, the thing with the Russians, and that's kind of what sets up the events of the rest of the show. Um, And the main thing that happens is that the Russians want to get back in the Upside Down. We don't really know why. Their motivation is obscured throughout all three seasons. But somehow... They have a failed experiment in Russia, and they need to go to a different location, and so they come to Hawkins. Right. Right. So that's technically the plot. But the reason that this season is so much better than the other two seasons is that there's so much more going on than that. Yeah, there's the base plot that's kind of been throughout all three seasons of, you know, the Russians are here, they're opening the pathway to the Upside Down, and everybody needs to figure out how to stop it. That's always going to be the plot, I think. Um, But what makes this season great is how it really dives into these characters even more. And it has so much to say because they're growing up. So the first scene, I think, of the whole season is Eleven and Mike in her bedroom. The first shot of the characters. I think the very first thing is like a prologue thing where the Russian machine explodes. Yeah, yeah. Um, But the first shot of the characters that we've you know, come to know in the show, the gang, is Mike and Eleven... Jamming um, out to Ryan Adams. (laughs) Yeah, and making out on her bed. So obviously that's a pretty big departure from how the show's tone has been because they've been so young. They seemed more like elementary school-aged kids or, you know, middle... Not elementary, middle school-aged kids. And now they seem like young high schoolers and they're starting to form relationships, romantic relationships with each other. They're going through all the normal coming of age type of of things so i think that's what really makes it very interesting yeah i think that's what really makes it work i do think though the one thing i thought this season executed a little bit better was the fact that i thought they made the villainous presence more believable Mm -hmm. i agree with you that the background stuff is way better and i think that that does make I think the character's getting older, the actor's getting older, and, and being giving more nuanced performances right. definitely aids the show. But I think also, I really felt the point of the villain this time. Like, I think there's really two, the two things that I think they really do well is I think they, they make Billy, mm-hmm. who gets possessed very early on, he's the face of the villain. He's the one who gets possessed by the mind flare and starts feeding people into this machine so that it can get more and more powerful. I think the actor who plays Billy, Dr. Montgomery, does a really good job. I think he's got, a, he's got a charismatic face. He's got a good presence on screen. I think that really works. And then I thought once they mind, the mind flare itself comes on screen... I thought he, it was intimidating. It looked really cool. I loved the gore in this season. Yeah, I like that too. I thought all of that was was really well done. And I think that from a very early stage, the fact that it starts by eating farm rats is gross. And I think it really sets the stage for what's really a... It's really kind of a creepy, crawly, disgusting creature. Yeah, and... It- it's an edgier season. For sure. So there's a lot more gore. I think it just comes with the kids getting older and the whole tone of the show kind of going up a notch. Yeah. You know, more people are dying. It, there's gross stuff. If, oh, there's a death count in this season. Yeah, yeah. Like if you're 
not into horror or sci-fi, like this season starts to probably get a little iffy for you, where before mm. it was kind of just a feel-good kids show. It's definitely ventured into the horror sci-fi realm. Yeah, it moves from J.J. Abrams kind of, we want to pay homage to 80s stuff to moving full on to, we're giving you a property that John Carpenter could have directed or yeah. something like that. Definitely. Completely agree with that. I think um, I think as we we move forward, I think we'll talk a little bit about what the mind flare really does. But let's kind of del- delve into what the characters have been up to this season and, and what we really thought of their their plot structure, because sure. the main thing is, you know, the mind flare and Billy and right. that stuff. But what I mean, I, I do think the reason that people could keep coming back to this show is the characters. Yeah, they give us good characters. They give us the small town dynamics, which yeah. really works. And I think the one that really starts the group knowing about what's going on is Nancy and Jonathan. They're in their summer after their junior year of high school. So they're interning. Yeah, so they start it in terms of Nancy gets the call at the paper Mm -hmm. about the diseased rats and they actually see something. But probably the first person who has an inkling about anything is Dustin in the first episode. Oh, that's true too, right? He is trying to talk to his girlfriend with the with Cerebro, the radio tower that he built, and right. he picks up on a a Russian transmission that's in a it's in a code, but it's in Russian. And because these characters have been through so much together, and I think they're probably naturally suspicious of things. I would be, um, yeah. Dustin is immediately like, "This is a secret Russian code. Something's going on. We need to de- decode it." And that kind of starts everything and Dustin seeks the help of Steve and then eventually Robin and Erica yeah I think that's a good that's a good point I I think that the way that the the group really is split up in this season makes it so that these independent pieces don't they kind of extraneously exist in parallel for the first several episodes and they don't really come together until like maybe the sixth episode or so where all of this stuff that's been happening really Yeah, they all kind of figure out what's going on on their own in different elements. So we were talking about Nancy and Jonathan. They get the call from one of the, you know... Mrs. Driscoll, one of the town folks. Yeah, yeah, one of the town folks that's known for these kind of crazy stories. But Nancy has an inkling about it and goes to visit her and brings Jonathan. And they see the diseased rat and they're like, something weird's going on. The rats are eating fertilizer, which is like a whole other weird subplot that they don't really talk about too much. You can kind of just make assumptions about why all the flayed people and animals do you know what i think it is i think it's so i think it i think the reason that they focus on rats at least is maybe because after they are able to because the explanation we get is after in season two l closes the gate Mm -hmm. at the end of season two the mind flare the part of the mind flare that existed in will was cut off from the upside down and it was weakened and in its weakened state, I think maybe the only thing it could have really done was possess rats. Maybe it wasn't strong enough at that point after being expelled from Will to possess humans immediately. And so it needed to kind of Yeah, recover. but that doesn't explain why they're eating fertilizer. Well, yeah, that that's actually, that's, a, that's interesting. The only explanation that I've read about it that really no one's really offered much of an explanation. The only explanation that I've heard is that they're eating the chemicals and drinking the chemicals to create some kind of reaction within their own bodies. That might work. I mean, there's also kind of the thing about how, like, the idea of fertilizer, if the thing is kind of an organically built creature, 
Maybe the fertilizer is a shorthand for like if you eat enough fertilizer, the thing's going to grow because it's just going to eat the humans anyway. So it doesn't matter how the fertilizer acts with the humans. Yeah, and the it's animals. kind of a weird subplot that I don't know if it entirely fits, but they totally make it disgusting just so you can see Mrs. Driscoll like face deep in a pile of fertilizer yeah, later in the show. Exactly. Yeah, I'm not sure it matters either. Yeah, so that's kind of how Nancy and Jonathan get started, and. When we talk about Nancy, a big thing to mention is kind of this overarching subplot of female empowerment. So it touches on a, a lot of the different female characters, probably Nancy and L and L eleven the most and the most blatant. But yeah. the way that it impacts Nancy is they're not Nancy and Jonathan are both interning at this paper. Jonathan's doing all the photography stuff. Nancy is kind of you know, a true stereotypical intern. She's getting coffee, she's getting Bagels, lunch. Bagels, burgers. She's, you know, yeah. she's answering phones, whatever. And whenever she tries to offer some kind of idea or insight into what the, the men are talking about, they call her Nancy Drew, they laugh at her. They, yeah. They're pretty harsh. Like, it, it's pretty rough. And later on in the season, um, she gets, like, kind of this pep talk from her mom about how a lot of people end up giving up. And she's kind of talking about herself, but she's kind of saying you should go after this story and sell it to a bigger paper and let the local people wish they had listened to you right. kind of stuff. So that's where it kind of impacts Nancy. And then it impacts Eleven a lot because she's really, this season is the first season where she's kind of exploring her identity more. She did do it in season two where they had that weird episode with all the other numbered people. Yeah, that didn't really work, um, right? It so. didn't really work. But that was kind of her coming into her own. And then in this season, she's really trying to break away from the men that have influenced her a lot. So being Mike and Hopper have really been the closest people to her. And now she's in a relationship with Mike. Yeah. And yeah. really, you know, they're both really into it. It's their first relationship. And then Hopper is acting as her father. I have a... I, I do want to talk about Eleven in the context of of that because i think there are there are multiple really good scenes that focus directly on her yeah uh, but i do want to get your opinion on one thing with nancy and jonathan i am of the opinion i know jonathan's one of the main characters okay he doesn't really work for me as a character and i think i'm not sure if it's the actor I'm not sure if it's maybe that they. I know they date in real life. The two, the two actors, um, Natalia Dyer and Charlie Heaton. But for some reason, not only did I not really buy their more advanced form of their relationship, but I also didn't. I thought that he really. They wanted to drum up a conflict of Jonathan being like, "Well, I have to work for college. I have to do all of this. You've had everything handed to you." It yeah. seemed like it was, like, I don't know. I feel like the Jonathan that maybe we would have gotten in the previous two seasons wouldn't have been that antagonistic towards Nancy, who was explaining her problems. I, I'm just not, I can't get I a read on who he is. He's been, for sure, a less developed character. Yeah. I think he's pretty two-dimensional in yeah. that, like, you know, his motivations before were really just that he liked Nancy. Right. And wanted to protect his brother. And he can shoot pictures. Yeah. Yeah. And he was just kind of the weird kid. And now, yeah, you're right. They do throw in a weird scene where she wants to keep going after this story and Jonathan's kind of like, just forget it. Like, just mm -hmm. whatever. And she's pretty much saying, like, you don't know how much this means to me type of thing. And kind of saying that she's been through a lot of hardship being a woman. In, 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 know, an, in, an trying, in a corporate-ish environment. Yeah, or trying to kind of have a career. And he pretty much says, like, oh, well, that's nothing compared to all what I've been through. 
And it, yeah, I thought it was a weird thing to kind of bring into it. And they even break up for a hot sec because of that. And yeah, it's kind of contrived. I think like it didn't bother me because there's so much other stuff, other stuff going on in the season that I was just like, okay, whatever. Like they just had some kind of fight and they're just kind of learning how to grow up together type of thing. I just think that like with, with so many characters in this show that I think are really well developed for me, the fact that Jonathan feels a little underdeveloped or underrepresented in the show, I think is, is kind of clear. Like I think and I'll, we'll talk about this when we talk about Murray a little bit, the Brett Gelman character. But I feel like Nancy really chews up the scenery with Jonathan. I think, like, every scene she's in, I feel like you, you're you really focusing on Nancy and Jonathan as a byproduct of Nancy's plot. And, I, and I'm not saying that that's bad. I think that that's fine. But I just think that whatever they were going for to drum up a conflict between them didn't really work. And it's now been basically three seasons of their will-they-won't-they relationship dynamic that hasn't really worked for me. I would say that's Well, I don't think it's a will-they-won't-they anymore. Well, now they're a will-they, right? Yeah, they're just together. I thought, I mean, I thought the kind of conflict they had was a a normal enough thing for a young couple like that to be going through, and them kind of just not totally understanding each other, Mm -hmm. but partially because they're not willing to, because they're 17 and they're stubborn and, you know, they just don't want to see it from the other person's point of view. They're trying to be their own people, but... I thought it was fine. I think it's fine that Nancy consumes the scenes they have together. I think she's a more interesting character. She is more interesting. Um, speaking of, of relationship dynamics, I think one of the funniest aspects of the early parts of the season is where Mike and Eleven, as you said, are making out in her room in the cabin yeah. to 80s uh, slow dance pop. And Hopper sits in his recliner and just stews about it, I guess that, and it seems like at, at least at the beginning of the of the season, Eleven doesn't go to school yet or anything like that. So it seems like she basically spends her entire day with Mike every day, basically in the summer. It, yeah. they, they made it seem like, oh well, call me, you know, at nine o'clock a.m. when you wake up, and they spend all day together, and that's kind of the dynamic we get. So Hopper's really her, his big introduction into the this season isn't necessarily a police matter, but he goes to Joyce saying, "What am I going to do about these two 13-year-olds who are literally spending every second together?" Right. And I thought that the whole element of Hopper trying to respectfully uh interject and talk to Mike and then how he utterly fails at it when he ends up so he he writes this whole speech with Joyce, and then he ends up just telling Mike that his grandmother is sick or is dying sick or, or whatever. whatever, and then gets him in the car and screams at him. And he he's very proud of himself for that. Yeah, I think it. I mean, it adds some levity to an otherwise pretty dark season. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it's some good comedic relief. You really only get it in the first couple of episodes because then everybody splits apart, and Hopper and Eleven don't see each other for most of the episodes. Yeah, majority of the episodes. Um, but yeah, those scenes that you get with all three of them are pretty hilarious. And he does drive a wedge between Mike and Al for a few episodes. And I think that all of that that we've talked about just goes to serve Elle's character development. Right. So because he's driven a wedge between Mike and Eleven, Eleven becomes better friends with Max, the only other girl in the group, and kind of gets to, you know, have that girlfriend and... Max is very much like, you don't need a guy, you know, be your own person, find your own style, stuff like that. So they go shopping. And I think it's just, 
would and they love showing off the mall. The, oh yeah. The big the one of the the background of a lot of the scenes in this season is this is the Starcourt Mall where all of these new chain businesses have become a conglomerate in the mall. Right. Run the downtown out of business largely. A lot of the downtown is boarded up, and so the adults have a resentment for it because it's it's causing some economic. Yeah, problems. I mean it's the classic kind of the the big mall is, is driving away all the small business. So yeah. the store that Joyce works at is a pop, mom and pop general store. It's clearly about to go out of business. Yeah. Um, yep. And stuff like that. But yeah, they it makes the season more interesting because it can get tired to just be in the same settings every season. You know, Will's house, Mike's house, the woods, the Russian lab. They, the they, lab, yeah. They bring a new element into it with this bright, fun I was about to say, yeah. That's brand new, and there's just so many interesting things to look at. They have all the stores that we have today, but just kind of in an 80s style. They go to the Gap a few times. Mm-hmm, and, JCPenney. Yeah, yeah. They, they have all the 80s style clothing. It's just really interesting. There's so many people at the mall that... You know, there's there's always something to look at when they're at. Do you the know? Mall. Uh, did you know corn on a stick or hot dog on a stick was a thing? The corn dog. Well, thing? I knew it was a thing. Well, but no, not... obviously we've had corn dogs, but did you know it was like a vendor, food vendor that was in malls? I had never seen that. I've never seen a corn dog in a mall, but no, me apparently neither. that's a thing. Yeah, which I I would. Wait, are you sure the corn dog was at the mall because they have a corn dog at the fair? I'm pretty sure. Well, no, I know that Murray has one at the fair, but I'm pretty sure there was a, a hot dog on a stick at the mall, which I'd never seen before. I think you're making a lot of this hot dog on a stick. Uh, well, look, I would love to have a hot dog on a stick They're store. barely at the food court. They're... It caught my attention well enough that I was like, I could go for a corn dog. By the way, uh, speaking of the, the when we were talking about Hopper and Mike and Eleven, the best two music cuts, I think, of the entire season occur during this time. Okay. The first is when Hopper freaks out at Mike in his truck and he says, you're either going to listen or I'll stop you from dating my daughter. And then after he fully intimidates him on his drive home, he sings the You Don't Mess With Jim yeah, song. That's a good one. Love that. And then the other one is after Mike lies to Eleven a couple of times and she decides to split up with him, she says, I dump your ass. And then it plays Cold as Ice. Which yeah. I thought were was great. I thought the the shows does a really good job. I think this season at some of the '80s music cues, which I guess is part of the experience of this show. But I thought that there were a few moments where I actually was laughing because of the song choice that they. Yeah, went they with. do a good job with that. It just adds to the whole nostalgia of it, and it makes the scenes more impactful when they have a great song behind them. Do you want to talk at all about? what Joyce is kind of going through throughout this season. Was that effective for you? I mean, obviously we liked Bob. I think it it was, and what we're talking about is Joyce grieving Bob's loss from season two. I That's very fresh to her. And I think the only thing it does for me, it doesn't really make me feel bad for Joyce. Right. It just serves as a way to keep her and Hopper kind of at arm's length. So Hopper is clearly pursuing Joyce, mm-hmm. you know, trying to go out to dinner with her a couple of times. They're they're together for most of the of the season. And people have shipped them on the internet for years. Yeah, and like it only half works for me. I understand how they work together. They are a good team. But I kind of agree with Murray where he was sick of them bickering and I kind of got sick of them Me bickering. too. I completely And it just agree. kind of became a, I don't understand why everything they say to each other, they have to just start fighting. And yeah. I get that part of that can be because they actually do like each other and they're just not really willing to take the step. 
Mm-hmm. But that's like what kids do. They're like right. 40. They were equally as embarrassingly juvenile as Mike and Eleven. Yeah, and like Lucas they're and like forty-year-old people. Yeah. I don't know why they can't just admit feelings for each other, or or why can't why can't Joyce just say, "Look, Hopper, I'm not ready. I do kind of like you, but I really miss Bob, and I just need to to grieve that for a while." It just seems really weird to me because they are such a good team and they're some of the only adults in the show and in other ways they're very mature and handle things really well but right that aspect of it i get i'm sure i know that's what they were going for with the bickering but it just kind of it grew tiresome a yeah bit. one of the other things i think and i'll ask you what you thought of this because i i, I kind of struggled with how this made sense there's kind of the, the thing where Joyce realizes that something's wrong with the magnetism. Mm-hmm. She blows off Hopper on a date that they had scheduled at Enzo's, which is a great scene where he gets drunk and pulls the uh, head cop from Jaws and he says, I'm the chief of police. I do whatever I want. Yeah. There's the, the whole thing where they decide to go to the Hawkins lab and see if anything's happening. And Hopper gets attacked by the Terminator character, and I'm going to just call him that. His name's Grigori, but he's basically a sub-in for the Terminator. Yeah. He's a Russian soldier with a big gun and can fistfight people. Why was Grigori in the lab when all of the activity takes place below the mall and at ab- the abandoned fields outside the mall? Why was he just waiting at the lab, which had been locked off and closed, to fight Hopper? That whole thing made no sense. Which lab? They go to the lab because Joyce is like, something's wrong with my magnets. We have to check it out. And they go to the lab, and Grigori's just waiting there and jumps Hopper and beats him up and rides away on the motorcycle. And that's how he figures out, oh, it's the guy from... I think he's just, like, a security-type guy. And he was... He was just there? There, because... Isn't oh no, that's not the same place where they find the no. lab later. Right. I they don't then know. they I then right. They cause ho- the whole thing that happens then is there's the great scene where Hopper remembers that he saw them in the mayor's office and he yeah. confronts the mayor who is the guy from the Princess Bride. Carrie Carrie Elways. Yeah, Mary Mayor Larry, who is a great addition to the season. Yeah, he's a good character. And the whole thing is that he's been getting kickbacks for delivering abandoned properties to the Russians so yeah. that they can yeah, build this machine. Yeah, I don't know machine. why that guy was there. I kind of just didn't think about it. I thought it was weird. It was like this weirdly paced thing where it's like, okay, now he has this identity and they can kind of go. He gets the files and they go to the abandoned properties. And mm-hmm. that's how they get a lead on what's happening. And then they steal Alexi away which is the key thing that they get because that's how they get their answers. Right. But the whole thing is that Hopper has the initial confrontation with the Terminator guy. I don't know. I think this this whole show has small plot inconsistencies or conveniences, just like how we never really know what the Russians are doing or why they want to right. be upside down, assuming they want to weaponize it because that's every bad guy's motivation. And all of the scenes, basically, in the very beginning when they only went to Murray to translate uh, Alexi's stuff and Hopper does the I'm going to call his bluff and give him the keys and that whole, there was like a whole like three or four scene sequence that I thought was bad, really didn't work. I think that they were just more cliché where the rest of the season is pretty original. But then, but yeah, like when they take Alexi, one of the Russian scientists, and they go to Murray's, who was in the previous seasons as a kind of an investigative journalist, but he also happens to speak Russian. So they go to him for translation. And Alexi is just not cooperating. So right. Hopper throws him outside with the keys and says, like, just leave. 
and he says to, to Joyce and Murray, like, oh, he's going to come back because he's afraid of the Russians, what they're going to do to him. And he comes back. And yep. it's just kind of like, okay, like, why do we even need this whole sequence of he could Right, he could have just revealed it. Yeah. So I get that. But I think that that kind of plays into probably this grouping of people being the weakest, the least entertaining. Which is surprising because I feel like Hopper and Joyce have been the center of the show in terms of the yeah. adult Well, I find part. Joyce just kind of annoying in general. That's a hot take. But I really do. I like Hopper. I think he's also a more flat character. He doesn't have too much development. I guess he does by the end of this yeah. season. But... He doesn't have a ton of development, considering how intense his backstory is. Right. The tenderness and the kind of... this The the thing that I thought made him work for the first two seasons and why I really liked his relationship with Eleven in the second season, and I would say that's probably the best part of the second season, mm-hmm. arguably, yeah. is this idea that he lost his child when years ago, and he's been living in this life that is so... I guess what he believes is kind of dull Right, and now he kind of has a second chance. Right. And he's overly protective of her and everything like that. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. But they don't really do anything with that. No, because he spends the entire season, this season, either drunk in the beginning or pissed off. And it it does come off as one note. Yeah, because he's really, literally just mad and bickering with Joyce the whole season. Yeah. Um, So that's kind of annoying. I find Joyce is nice because she is one of those like really smart characters like her and mike they kind of tend to figure things out really quickly Mm, which really serves to move the plot and then they can also explain things to the other characters which i really like and obviously joyce has just played a huge role in all these seasons as being kind of the driving force of trying to figure out what the heck is happening right because her son was the center of the tension and then the other two characters that are kind of in this grouping for a lot of the episodes are alexi and murray Alexi, he's a good character. Yeah, he's fine. How attached can you really get to him? I thought his death was tough. He hasn't been in it much. He doesn't have a backstory, except that you just assume he's probably afraid of his of the Russian people now that he's been captured. Yeah, of the Soviet supervisors. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's fine. He's like kind of funny, and that's why I think people like him. But then you have Murray, who to me is the one character of this whole show that really just sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah. I don't not like him i just i'm not a fan of those kind of know-it-all characters that like we've been talking about hopper and joyce have been bickering non-stop there's a point towards the middle or end-ish of the season where murray calls them out for their bickering and pretty much says like why don't you guys just get together already whatever and kind of explains to them how they're feeling about each other and he did which the same he did right thing with nancy and jonathan yep. last season and i felt like one that was the same speech to me interchangeable with the stuff that he said to nancy and jonathan and two i just i don't find it charming when one of the characters just knows things that they couldn't possibly know makes assumptions is rude and just says things that nobody would ever say i just think he's he's a character for the sake of the show yeah he's not a real person and i think that he just doesn't fit in with the realm of the show because every all the other characters they could be real people. They're just obviously in a crazy situation, an extreme circumstance. But, like, you can picture Mike being a real kid. You can picture Joyce being that the real mom and Hopper yeah. being that sheriff that we've seen in a lot of different types of shows and movies. Right. I don't know. You can kind of just relate to all of these characters where Murray, I don't relate to him at all. I just think he's kind of obnoxious and he just serves to translate 
and move the plot along. I thought, and I completely agree, I thought really the only thing with Murray and Alexi that really worked for me was once they got to the carnival, I like I did like the little friendship that they developed. Yeah, I, I liked like the I liked how he was excited for Alexi when he won the the carnival prize and stuff right. like that. I thought I thought that showed a really interesting thing where this guy who isolates himself purposefully because of his work does uh, you know develops this friend this unlikely friend and I thought that that worked for me and that that's why when Alexi gets killed. I actually was a little emotional. Like I thought I was a little upset that they killed him that you know. I just figured there's no was... way he's ever going to play a major role in this show, sure. so he probably would get killed. Yeah, I, it don't was, know. I thought it was effectively presented, I guess would be the way that I would say. I agree with you though. Of course, obviously he's yeah. not going to be a main character as we move forward. Yeah, so while that group, the Hopper, Hopper and his people are kind of investigating from kind of the Russian side, and they have Alexi with the inside information, mm-hmm. we have Dustin, Steve, Robin, and eventually Erica as another group trying to decode that Russian message and translate it together. So Steve has been in the other two seasons as kind of the popular guy. Now we see him and his character change as he's graduated high school, didn't get into college, and now is working at the ice cream store at the mall. I think the guy who plays Steve is great. Yeah. I, I think the actor's name is Joe Keery. I don't know that I've ever seen him in anything else. Steve was the unlikable jock character in the first season. And like by the third season, you're like, oh yeah, I would be like best friends with this guy. Yeah. You know? I, I, yeah, I thought he was great. they do a good job with that character, and he works really well with Maya Hawk who plays Robin. So she's basically, she's one year behind him, so she's still in high school. But she's more of an academic type, more Mm -hmm. of a... I think she's just, she's a band kid. She's quirky, but yeah. That's how she kind of describes herself. And then, so she works at the ice cream store with him, and it's pretty much like, look, I'm bored, let me help you do all this. Right. Because previously all she had been doing is tallying his misses when he was trying to hook up with girls. Yeah, they have a really funny relationship playing off each other he's flirting with all the girls coming in they're rejecting him because he works at the ice cream right. store and is kind of a washed up previous high school like yeah. high school was his peak kind of guy right yeah and then steve and robin also kind of are flirting throughout most of the season even though they reveal at the end that robin is actually interested in women which what did you think of that i thought that was great i thought it made their conversations make a lot more sense so they have a conversation where Eventually, they do obviously decode all this Russian stuff, and they make their way to something below the mall that's kind of like this huge Russian lab, and they get captured and are talking. And she pretty much says, which he doesn't know what it means, but she's saying how she was so distracted by him in high school, and, you know, she's the band kid, he was the popular guy, mm-hmm. and kind of alluding to, like, I always had a crush on you, but you were never Interested in attainable. me, because I was the band right. girl, yeah. And then, I, I thought that that conversation was a little bit stereotypical, and kind of a weird heart-to-heart for them to have, but then later on, when they are having another heart-to-heart, and she's saying, like, look, I didn't say that to you because I was interested in you, I said that to you because this girl that I liked was interested, was interested in, you, in you instead of me. And you kept taking yeah. all the attention of all the girls, and I was never able to kind of express myself. I so thought that was great. I thought that it, it made the best of all of the kind of tension between the two of them. I completely agree because because not only in the beginning they lead you down this path and it's like 
the main point is that probably someone like Robin would not be necessarily interested in someone like Steve, but by making it about the fact that she was more jealous of the attention that he got, I thought that that was really well handled. I, I thought that that brought a legitimacy to all of the scenes that we had with them. One little thing that bothered me, and, and I'm... I don't mean to nitpick, but the whole thing with the elevator and how the... Sometimes they needed a key card, but sometimes it seemed like, like they it just, just... Erica just opened it. I, that whole thing was weird. Like how they, they're able to break into this thing because they know that the Russians are getting shipments and it ends up being this chemical element or acidic substance that Which fuels I'm, the machine. Oh, it fuels the machine, okay. Yeah, no, they, they do put it in the machine, but they also use it as a way to distract the Russians because it has dangerous propensities as well. Yeah. I thought the whole thing where they're sometimes able to get in and out without a key card, but other times they need it. And it, it felt a little convenient. There was like a weird like episode where they're stuck in this thing that, that I thought was bizarre. And then eventually they're able to, they're able to break out and the plot kicks back in. I didn't in. think it was bizarre. I did think it was inconsistent how they were getting in and out of this place. Right. Like the whole time they were trapped underground, they want they needed to get a key card to leave. But when Erica first lets them in, no, she, she just presses add a button. A and then, yeah, yeah. So whatever. I mean, I guess well, no, because I was gonna say, well, maybe the Russians knew they were there, and they they're the ones who sent the shipment down because they wanted to capture them. But they just stayed in there for like a whole day. So no, I don't think that's right. Either way, it doesn't matter. It is what it it's is. It's a nitpick. What did you so one one last thing with this group? Erica has been the subject of a lot of discussion on this show because she's a new addition, but also some people really like her and think she, that she's this like great kind of little kid that that says funny things, and then other people have criticized it as being like a little stereotypical. I mean, what do you like? What do you really think? Honestly, I don't feel like she's in it enough where. It would bother me. I mean, she is stereotypical in that whole, like, kind of big mouth little kid says things that are a little edgy. She curses and stuff, but right. she's only, like, eight. Yeah. Um. So I don't think it's, like, hilarious or anything. I don't feel like I really laughed when she was talking. But right. she worked well in the dynamics of the group. I mm -hmm. think maybe if she was with all the other kids, it wouldn't have worked as well, but... Being with Steve, Robin, Dustin, then having her join it, I think it was fine. And I think, honestly, the other characters took over way more than she did. So it didn't feel like she was kind of overpowering that group. Right. I thought, I thought once she gets involved with them and the mission starts, I thought she was fine. Yeah, and I like sure. the I like the fact that Dustin kind of re makes her realize like you're also a nerd like everybody's kind of a nerd because we all like our own things. Yeah, like you're not better than us. But I I did I did think in the very beginning where she was trying to solicit free ice cream samples and stuff like that was kind of I it felt it a little kitschy. Fine. I wouldn't say that I I love her or hate her. She's she's a fine character. I thought she fit well in the group and she she helped for the plot and that was that. Yeah. The other one uh, last thing with these guys, the Steve and Robin get drugged with the truth serum, like basically at drunk all the way through a, a, an escape Hilarious. routine. They're both great at acting drunk. Yeah, they were both really good. I thought that they were, there were multiple hilarious scenes between them. And then the last group uh, before final thoughts, the rest of the kids, the Mike, Lucas, Max, Eleven, Will group. The the way that it really works is that Max and Eleven spend a lot of time together. Yeah. They realize something's wrong with Billy, who is Max's older stepbrother. Yeah. 
And Eleven kind of dives into his backstory during an attempt to kind of figure out what's going on. I yeah, found Billy's backstory you, to be really... How did you feel about Billy's character? I, like I said before, I thought the actor was good. I'm, I thought his backstory was extremely cliche. Yeah. The idea, you know, the, the dead mother who he has memories at the beach with and she's wearing the long dress. And it feels like we've seen that a million times. And, and like, I thought they set up enough to have Billy's negative attitude be largely influenced by the abuse that his father gives him. Yeah. I thought that that was a fine setup. I don't know that we needed all this additional stuff. And if anything, at the end where he has his final Dr. Octopus, I won't die a monster moment and saves Eleven from the Mind Flayer, it was ineffective for me. I didn't really care. Yeah, I didn't really care that much. And like you knew it was going to happen. You know that the Mind Flayer is not going to kill Elle, so obviously... Billy's going to intervene. Mm-hmm. And I think we watched, I rewatched, you watched for the first time, the second season, right before the third season. where And that's the season where they introduced Billy. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like the character they introduced in season two is not the same person that they have in season three. And I know, like, most of season three, he's flayed and not acting properly. But even in the beginning... Yeah. Like... You're right. In season two, he's a total... He's a, literally a racist, so... He's a total jerk. Yeah. <laughs> Everything he does is horrendous. He kind of cares about Max, but mostly just treats her like garbage. So for then you to try to spend the whole season three feeling bad for him, it just... It didn't connect really for me. Yeah. I think they should have, in season two, made him slightly more likable, or at least given him an avenue to be more likable... But really, you're just supposed to feel bad for him because the Mind Flayer took over. And, like, I get that. I, I do feel bad for him because of that, but it doesn't change but you that, have limits that to his that. character is just a jerk. Yeah. So there's only so much I'm going to really feel about Billy. I think he's right. a really effective villain in that, like, he's creepy. He gives a face to the monster, which is great, which hasn't really been done before in the previous seasons. Right. But I think, like, the Billy arc overall, it doesn't really do anything for me. He he gives a couple good scenes. He has the one scene where he goes to dinner at the fellow lifeguard's house, Heather, because he's already abducted yeah, Heather. Yeah, that's a good scene. And then he converts Heather's father, Tom, who is coincidentally the, news, the, the newspaper, newspaper editor. Guy, yeah. And it leads to that great scene with Nancy and Jonathan in the paper where the camera angle uh, twists at like a 30 yeah, degree angle. Yeah, when Tom is chastising them for going to Mrs. Driscoll's yeah. and investigating the that's, that's a great scene. I thought the manic approach that they gave Tom and some of the other, eventually the other Blade people, I thought that was really good. And that also leads to a, a fantastic hospital scene where Nancy's investigating Mrs. Driscoll and... Tom and the yeah, other guy, I, mean, I forget his name, but they, they, the other newspaper guy, yeah. They attack them in the hospital and, like, literally straight out of Halloween, too. Yeah, look, I mean, the creature design and the creepiness of this season is just superb. Right. And the, and the other thing, I think the cool scene with Billy is where he's, he's in the car outside the mall staring them down so yeah. they can't escape. And that's like, that reminded me a lot of Stephen King's Christine with yeah. the headlights, you know, right on them. Yeah, and and that's really with them. I think I think with with Billy and like Ellen Max, that's basically the thing. A lot of the sh- of the of their dynamic is basically just Eleven showing up to save them. It happens twice. There's the one scene in 
the hot no no in the sauna where she's able to throw billy yeah, out so she does a little bit of the typical kind of l using her powers to save them but then the interesting part of the season is ultimately she's not the one who saves them they right. all band together at the mall and fight this thing together and ultimately hopper and joyce close the gate and that's what ends it ends it right but Elle loses her powers this season, and by the end, she can't even crush a Coke can. So I think that'll be really interesting for next season to see kind of how that develops and if she regains them and and kind of what's the driving force behind that. Is it? It seems like it was just because she was so drained, but then. She's, but we're not sure. It could be because sure. the upside down is entirely closed, and too. she's not regaining them. So I think that'll be really interesting for the next season. The only other character we didn't really talk about is Will. I think it's because neither yeah. of us really care about Will. Yeah. But his whole plot this season is pretty much he's the only one of the group that doesn't really want to grow up. He wants to keep playing Dungeons and, and Dragons and be Will the Wise. And Well, he lost two years of his life, basically. Right, when he was kind of in the Upside Down for a while and then flayed for a while. So he's not really had a normal childhood at all. Um, yeah. None of these kids have, but him especially. So he's kind of stuck in that that mindset and is having trouble coming to terms with his friends growing up. What did you think about the scene with Will and Mike where they're fighting kind of about this topic? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Mike says, it's not my fault that you don't even like girls. Uh, I know that that's gotten some attention in terms of like, do we think that Will could potentially be the second lgbt character because of the he show says that and then there's a long pause like we're supposed to be inferring something that they're communicating to each other so i actually interpreted it as the reason will's entire his entire uh way of acting this this season is primarily because he's in basically delayed development because of the amount of time he spent in the upside down mm-hmm. he he's He's went through traumatic experiences, he's lost years of his childhood, and it's kind of delayed his emotional maturity. Right. And that has led to him clinging on to his past with his friends to play the games that they played years ago, while so much has changed despite the fact that he had been missing. And I think that that kind of relates to the thing with girls. I I think they've left it sufficiently open to make him potentially gay. I think if they they expanded on that, I wouldn't be surprised at all. And I would be fine with it. Yeah. I think that that's yeah, a fine, fine way. Yeah, it fine. I just thought it was interesting how they never followed that up or anything. Well, the other thing that they did, too, is don't forget when when very... It might have even been the first season, but when Joyce was talking about her ex-husband, Will and Jonathan's father, yeah. she said that, that the father you and, and some of the bullies at school used to call him the F word all the time. Mm. And how I think that they have set up a, a possibility that Will could be gay, but I think it's equally as likely that it's just a developmental thing, that he's just behind the other boys. And honestly, I just don't think it matters that much. I don't think it matters either. Um, will I, will maybe, totally flop for me this season. Yeah, and maybe it will matter in season four, but... In season three, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, Will kind of flopped. His only thing was he could he could feel the, the thing on the back yeah. of his neck. Which I kept thinking of Spider-Man Far From Home with the Peter tingle. That's oh, what I kept yeah. thinking of the yeah, whole time. Yeah, I think you were joking that the whole time. The, the Willie tingle. The Will tingle, yeah. Yeah, and um, I think... So final thoughts on this season. I would say... Again, this is my favorite season. I liked the creature the best. I love the fact that the creature was a hodgepodge of John Carpenter's The Thing... The Blob and um, Alien, how it would stick a tentacle out 
and and attach to your face and 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 suck into yep. you know impregnate you with its with its essence i don't know it, it didn't you know it doesn't have the same thing in alien where it like pops out of you really but there was the cool scene with l where she gets bitten and she has to like take the yeah, piece of it out cool. I think they're, that's another thing that they're still working on is, like, all of the rules of the monster. Yeah, um, for sure. They're still working that out. So that'll be interesting to see in seasons four and five how they kind of handle that. Yeah, I think I loved this season. I thought it was the best one. And I liked season one, but this is above that for me. Loved the creature design, all the yep. nostalgia. And I just loved how they just continued to develop these characters in different ways. I, I thought it was really successful, and I'm excited to see what they do for, for the next seasons. And I liked the the one other small pop culture thing I want to mention that really tickled my fancy was the cabin scene where the thing was breaking through the windows and through the top, totally Evil Dead, where okay. Ash... Yes, absolutely. The way the camera spun around the cabin and stuff, I loved that. I thought it immediately took me right to... Who directs these? The the Stranger Things? Yeah. This tandem, the Duffer brothers, who have never directed... But they direct it or they write and it? They write it and, and direct it. I think they directed four of the episodes. Um, and the only other thing that they're really known for is the show Wayward Pines, which I've never watched. I've never watched, but I think it's similar to this in that the sci-fi-ish realm. Yeah, and then they... I mean, like every other show, like there are multiple directors. Like they... The main guys do the couple opening episodes and the closing episodes, and then there are some fill-in directors in between. Like, the director who directed two of the episodes is Sean Levy, who directed a bunch of movies in the 90s. Big Fat Liar, Cheaper by the Dozen, Pink Panther, Night at the Museum. Yeah, those don't really fall into... Right, which don't really fall into the thing, but I think that they bring in these competent, at least partially competent, experienced people to at least effectuate the message. Yeah. But I would... Uh, in terms of score, I would give this episode or this se- uh, season three of Stranger Things a four out of five. Oh, we're scoring things. We're scoring. I it. was not prepared for a score. I would say four out of five, solid, like B plus for this season. Honestly, I watch so much TV. I think this is a four and a half out of five. Really? It's just it's a it's way better than a lot of things that are out there right now. I really I will say it's stuck with me. Like we watched it, we finished it last weekend and we watched it in like 3 days and this season is really like I've I've consumed a lot of Stranger Things material since we finished because mm-hmm. I definitely was interested in it and I did not do that with the first two seasons. So it definitely grabbed my attention. And really had me kind of investigating the different throwbacks that they had and stuff like that. That was interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked about how this season of Stranger Things was a little bit darker, but nothing gets darker (laughs) than the next show that we're going to talk about, Euphoria on HBO. So we're going to spoil it because you can't really talk about the plot without spoiling it. So if you haven't watched might want to drop off. Well, do you want to just say, but just would you recommend this show for people? For our friends out there I who might listen to this. I seriously would need to know the person to write Interesting, it. yeah. If you can withstand a lot of really depressing material and that's the and kind shocking of, material. That's the kind of stuff you want to watch, then yeah, go for it. If you've got a high tolerance, then sure. It's a well-made show for sure. The acting is great. 
if you're someone yeah. who wants to like watch The Office before they go to bed and you're looking <laughs> for a substitute, definitely skip this. Right. Um, this is right. This is not the I'm gonna put on Netflix or put on HBO for an hour as I'm going to sleep no. or you know I just want to unwind at night. No, this is an no, emotionally no, no, no. challenging show. It challenges basically every societal assumption that we have. Right. So if you yeah. haven't seen it and you're still listening for some reason, the basic plot of Euphoria is it follows this central character, played by Zendaya, the singer, and her... Mm-hmm. Rue. Yeah, her name is Rue in the show. And she is in high school. I think she's like 17 or so. 16. Yeah, I would say she's probably a senior. Yeah. Yeah, 16, 17. And she is a drug addict so part of the season she's on drugs part of the season she is clean mm-hmm. you should see some relapses but basically she's the main driving character she actually narrates a lot of the episodes in the beginning mm-hmm. but each episode really focuses on a different person that she goes to high school with yep. each of them having their their own plethora of <laughs> that's a of, great use of, of that word really yeah. horrible problems yeah so the first, so they focus on Rue first and how she is addicted to, what's her thing? Uh, any kind of prescription painkiller. Yeah. So the whole thing is that her backstory is that her father got sick when she was a teenager. Right, and she would try those drugs and mm-hmm. eventually got hooked on them, even yep. though she's only like 16. And she enters the show rejoining high school in her either junior or senior year. We're not sure which right. one it is. And everyone... Everyone knows she's been to rehab. Everyone knows she's addicted right. to drugs. And her so whole... So that's yeah. her thing. And just, yes. She's the first episode. Um, And a big part of Rue's life is her mother and her sister. Her father has passed away. Yep. And then um, her best friend, Jules, who is another student at the school. Played. A recent import, too. She's yes. brand new to the school. Yeah, so she just moved there. She's played by Hunter Schaefer, who's a transgender actress playing a transgender mm-hmm. um, character. Character, But she's far along in her transition. She's already, you know... Fully living as herself, yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of another subplot, and we'll talk about Jules a little more. But the next person that they really dive into is Nate. Nate. So he's the quarterback of the football team and he his big thing is that he is every bit of the toxic masculinity trope that you would expect but the twist is that he's deeply uncomfortable about his sexuality. Yeah. And so he dates this other character Maddie who is a, an important character in the show that that is also has an episode designated for her. But rather than it just being about his nasty temper and his sense of entitlement, it also deals with the fact that his father, Cal, is the kind of big man on campus in the town. He's got one of the larger businesses, and he discovers at a young age that his father has secret hookups with with transgender girls, trans women, and films them. In various hotel rooms. Maybe with gay men, too. 
Yeah, he films the encounters and he has this collection of CDs. In his in his his desk. And Nate discovers it and it, I think it only reinforces Nate's uh, uh his the fact that he's really uncomfortable with his sexuality. Like the Nate episode is the one that famously or infamously has the shot of the forty penises or whatever in the locker room very early on in the episode. Yeah, the, that everybody the show talked does about. not censor anything. No. Um, it actually gets more tame as it goes on. It kind of shocks you in the first few episodes. And then it becomes really about the characters. It really finds a groove, I think. It does. There's a lot of... Most of the episodes, They Rue starts the episode by kind of voicing over one of her classmates. Right, so, she'll, right. so she'll say, like, Nate... He, this is Nate's character, and you see his upbringing. Like with Nate's, you see the fact you. That's when you track through the locker room, and yeah. you see him kind of trying to so not look at of, the penises. You meet the other characters yeah. as you're going through the show, and then each episode kind of delves into them more deeply. And they all have their own messed up stuff. So there's Cat, who in the very beginning of the show is more reserved. She is struggles with her weight. Yeah, she struggles with her weight and her confidence, and then pretty much overnight becomes a cam girl and dresses in exclusively like BDSM style clothing. Yeah. A lot of leather school, a lot of leather, like collars. Yeah. Um, yeah. And stuff like that. And then there's Jules. Who's the, who's Rue's friend slash girlfriend at some point and her upbringing, which is really kind of pleasant-ish. Her dad is really nice. Her mom didn't really accept her. Well, and then the the thing is, is I think it never tells us, but we're assuming that her parents split up after her mom tried to institutionalize her yeah. as a youth. So we think what happens is she now lives with the dad. The mom's out of the picture. The dad is very accepting of her of her being transgender and her choice of identity. Yeah, very he's supporting. Just very supportive. Yeah. Like low key and nice character, yeah. actually. But and then we talked about Maddie, who is Nate's girlfriend, and she's kind of like the coolest girl at school and she's dating Nate, but she also sometimes cheats on him. So they're like on much, again, off again. Pretty much there's a big scene in the show that drives a lot of the conflict where Maddie is at a party and she has sex with an older guy, not that much older, but he's like yeah. 22 or something, and she's 17, in a pool in front of everyone Everybody. at the party. Yeah, everybody um, knows. So that's a big trigger for a lot of the characters and a big a big point on the show. So pretty much a lot of the dynamic with Nate is him confronting this guy and pretty much forcing him to give himself up in this whole elaborate... Yeah, the, the, idea, the idea is like Jules and, and Nate's dad hook up because his whole thing is that he's interested in young transgender women. Right. So by hooking up with Jules and then Nate, I think, sees the tape. So Nate blackmails Jules and he also blackmails Tyler because Tyler. So the whole thing is that he gets Tyler to testify after he commits a domestic violence assault on Maddie later in the show because he's a psychopath. He blackmails Tyler to say, I did it because he has this power over Tyler mm-hmm. because he's basically like, you could be convicted of statutory rape because she's underage. Yeah. The, and then, way, the way he blackmails Jules is because there's another plot where right. Nate and Jules are communicating on an app. Well, I think the only reason Nate did that was made because he found out that his dad had slept with Jules. Do you think that that's the case? Or do you think that he independently sought out Jules and maybe tried to have a genuine relationship with her. Because when they have that meetup, 
Because the whole thing is Jules is like, oh, I'm going to meet up with this guy. They text for like two episodes or whatever. And I'm unclear about whether or not he would have actually considered to be well, serious. Well, this is, this is one of my problems with the show overall is I just find it all very confusing. There's so much going on. And it's sometimes hard to understand what's going on because it's so crazy that you can't follow it logically. So everything that Nate does, he blackmails someone that his girlfriend cheated on him with. Tyler, that guy Tyler, Beats him to a pulp and blackmails him to go give himself up for assault. assault. On Maddie because Nate actually strangled Maddie. Yeah, so Nate's also abusive to Maddie. So he beat up Tyler and Maddie and then is also communicating with Jules on an app in a romantic way and then when he meets her he's abusive to her and then blackmails her with nudes that he has of her that she sent him saying you can't distribute child pornography so you need to corroborate tyler's story that he was the one who strangled maddie yeah so i think that whole thing is pretty convoluted and i don't really understand how nate a 17 year old jock is going to be able to outsmart the police in all right of like this. he also gives away drew's drug dealer fez later in the show too yeah and the whole thing with Maddie and, and Tyler, everyone at the party witnesses that, so I don't really see how there's any way around it. And I Yeah. I mean I guess the idea is that he's kind of the homecoming king. People wanna believe that he's the he's the Yeah, and nice I think guy. I think that's true because at the end of the season in the finale, I think when they're at the football game, he he gets accused of all this stuff. He finds his way out of it that we talked about. And then he comes back to play in the homecoming or in the final football game of the season. And everyone cheers for him. And they even say over the loudspeaker that the community is here to support him. So mm. I guess that that proves your point of like that's kind of the motivation between him getting away with all this stuff. But just like a lot of Because he has sh- privilege. He has. Just like a lot of this show, it's extremely unrealistic of what's actually going to happen. It's an ex- it's a total extreme situation. Yeah, they take these eight people with all of these problems or whatever. We haven't even gotten all of them. Realistically, you might know two people that have gone through things like this in your life. There's probably one person at your school that has one of these problems. But they they throw it all into basically a breeding ground for all of this drama. And, And I actually disagree slightly. I think for me, the fact that maybe we're left guessing to motivations here and there is not enough to detract from what I thought was like a really interesting exploration of real world issues. Like I thought for me, yeah. I thought the the way that they, so just a few things that they hit right off the bat, Nate with his father. I thought that the way they resolved his arc and had his dad pin him down and there's all the pent up frustration where Nate literally lashes out and like punches the floor and stuff. He's so frustrated and he has all of this built up rage about his situation i think that he's really struggling to come to terms with who he is as a person because it even there's even a conversation with maddie when they're having sex where she's like look sexuality is a spectrum it's not a big deal and nate's like no 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 like he's so horrified by his dad's behavior that he's boxed himself i think into a corner and what he expects from himself but I think also at the same time, when Cal and Jules have a conversation weeks after their hookup and he says, please don't say anything. I don't want this to ruin my family. There's this tender moment where Cal's like, and he also says it to somebody later in the show where he's like, I'm worried that my alter ego, my lifestyle has lent to my son's rage and his his terrible behavior. I thought that was really well done, that you yeah. expect Cal to be this 
nasty presence and they immediately subvert your expectations and they make him like somewhat sensitive and somewhat introspective. Yeah, I really, there were several times in this show, especially with Cal, where I thought in this scene, someone's going to be murdered. Right. Like, that's how much I felt like Cal was this evil person. But yeah, they do subvert your expectations with that. But that's really the only time they do that. Is with that character. I think the other thing that was just to hit the other two characters, uh, I think the other they, they, that worked really well for me, McKay and Cassie. Cassie's like the another popular girl at school, but she has like a negative sexual history. Everyone kind of talks about her as being kind of the local girl who hooks up with everybody. Yeah. And she's actually has a really horrific backstory where her father abandoned the family and got hooked in with drugs and hasn't talked to him for years. It's really, it's really sad. And you really feel for her. She goes through an accidental pregnancy storyline in this show. I thought that... you watch her get an abortion. Yeah, she's... I think that they handled her really well. And I think the other thing is they handled McKay really well, who is the character that she dates through most of the season. McKay is much less fleshed out than the rest of these characters that get their own entire episode. I don't know that he really deserved to get his whole episode for him. Yeah, I think it's cliche to have him as the father that's like, you should love football as soon as you think you're not good enough. He's so small. He's never going to be an NFL Oh, clearly. Player. Yeah, he's like 5'9". I don't know what to think. But it's yeah. kind of, he's the only one also that's in college. So he's doing the transition from high school to college and realizing that he was a big fish in a small pond. And now that he's at school, everyone's right. as cool as him. Everyone's as smart as him. Everyone's as good at football as him. And he's I do trying think, to find his own identity, just like the rest of the characters. I do think they did the hazing scene with his frat brothers well. And I do think that there's the scene where they, where he's like, trying to summon the courage to like become normal again after breaking down after being like really badly hazed and him and Cassie have like this kind of consensual non-consensual sexual encounter with each other I thought that that was like really well done I think I think the thing that McKay and Cassie even though they're less interesting characters I think that they're both really good actors and we've seen McKay in other stuff Algie Smith yeah. he was in Detroit Catherine Bigelow's Detroit. Cassie was just in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, actually. Yeah, you pointed that out, and I, it was um, shocking. And that it was she her. did have a brief stint on Handmaid's Tale. Oh, okay. Back when it was decent. Okay. Yeah, I thought that that was really well done. So here's how I kind of feel about the show in some. I think that the first couple episodes were really designed to be as shocking as possible. Yeah. Then I think it really hit a stride from like episodes three, four, five, six. I think that there was like a four episode space where I thought it was some of the best stuff that I've watched in a while. Uh, like the carnival episode, I thought was fantastic. I thought it was amazing. Okay. And then I thought that it faded at the end and I thought the last episode really didn't work. The last for me. episode was a mess and it kind of was an extreme version of how I was feeling all season, which was confused. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of brought that all together for me of just totally didn't understand what was going on. What was the timing of everything? And I know, obviously, some of that's going to be purposeful. Yeah. But people need to leave the season wanting to watch the next season and understanding what happened. And you, they may have turned some people off with that finale. I yeah. guess it leaves you wanting to know, but it's just because you're confused, not because you're interested. Yeah. I didn't mind the fact that they left Rue's fate because she relapses at the very end. And they reveal that like the reason she dresses the way she dresses and she wears these zip-up hoodies is because that's how her dad dressed. So she wears a lot of her dad's clothes. I think that that was like really sad. I thought that was well done. But I thought that the fact that you make her fate 
unclear is fine whether or not she... I I have a hard time believing that she's dead because there's going to be another season and she is the narrator. So is she going to narrate from beyond the grave? It doesn't seem... Right. I mean, we figured that there was a possibility she would die at the end of the season and that this was like her looking back as a dead character. At least I thought that. I don't know if you did. I thought that, but I don't feel that way about season one anymore. I don't Me think... Me neither. She's not think, been dead yeah. this whole time. I think maybe they could tell season two from that perspective. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, I just wasn't into it. And I don't think I've been as sold on the show as you. So having the finale not really meet expectations was just kind of... I think the finale, for the big flaw in the finale for me was the fact that like there's this weird scene where her and, her and Jules have this conversation and she's like... That is so weird. Where they d- decide to run away. Yeah, they're like, oh, we're going to run away. And then Jules like boards a train and Rue's like, no, I'm not going to go. My family would be so upset. And then they like split up and then Rue's like all upset. But I it's... think it's really uncharacteristic of Jules' character to do something like that. She's not, at least in the show, she hasn't been reckless at all. No, because like her whole thing is like, oh, well, when she, go- when she goes to the city to hang out with her previous friend and the friend's friend, Anna, who she hooks up with. In one of the episodes, which felt like strangely to me, like the eleven goes off to whatever, and like there's this random detour for an episode. Like those characters were only in one episode. Jules' yeah. friends that she just spends time with. But anyway, yeah. So, but I guess she's going back there, and Rue's like, I'm not gonna go. But it, right, it felt kind of uncharacteristic because when Jules went before, she 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 told everybody beforehand, oh, I'm seeing this friend. Yeah, and like she has a good home life. Like her dad is very supportive and caring, and it just seems weird that she would pick up and leave. Yeah, I can understand it from Rue's character because she is reckless and manic and kind of does things on impulsively. Yeah, but then she's the one who ends up not going, and then that kind of causes her whole relapse. Which, honestly, when I was first watching it, I didn't even know what I was watching. Um, and it was only until we talked about it more that I understood that she had relapsed and yeah, she's, like she's probably at something. rehab again. And that's probably where her mom is giving this speech. So I thought that was really interesting. Another interesting thing about the finale, which I thought was a, the better aspect of the finale, is the narrator is not Rue. It's Rue's mom. Oh, you liked that? I liked that because I think it... It showed a different perspective of these kids. We've been so deep in the thick of their crazy stories and their relationships with each other. So for them to take a step back and kind of give it to you from the parents' point of view, I thought that was interesting. Oh, see, I that didn't work for me at all. It didn't work for me in that it made me confused. I didn't understand where she was and how she was giving the speech. Yeah. I have a real problem discerning reality from fantasy in this show, which in some aspects is cool. Like when there's the scene with Lexi and Rue where they um, are being detectives. And I that's love that. And clearly a fantasy yeah. scene. Yeah, Um, And there's also another scene where a bottle of pills is talking to Rue and all this. And I loved that aspect. But the finale seemed more of straight up I didn't know what was going on. Yeah, right. I think it, it depends on... There's like a music video in the middle. Oh, they couldn't resist You know what I sing. found out is that Drake is actually an executive producer of the show. Weird. That may be why there was a music video in the last episode. That's bizarre. I, I think that I'm more forgiving on 
experimental narrative than you are. I think that that's kind of when we look at it's our taste. It's hard for me to relate to it, and you're definitely more of a character. I'm definitely more of like a visual and overall yeah. motif based. And person. that's why my favorite part of this show is that they take all of these stereotypes for high school and they give you these really twisted backstories for them. I thought that was my favorite. So part like too, Rue though, is yeah. the alternative weird girl in the corner. Like I'm thinking of like The Breakfast Club, like. Yeah. Giving all of those characters really twisted backstories that kind of tells you why they're the way they are. Rue is the, you know, the alternative goth, goth girl that nobody really knows much about. Nate's the jock. Nate's the jock. Kat is the... Overweight but secretly fun. Yeah, weird. Just another kind of nerd yeah. weird girl. Jules is the free spirit. Yeah, Maddie and, and Cassie are the cool girls, and yeah. they both have, like, drastically different stories that lead them to be who they are. And then McKay's kind of another jock, but, like, yeah, a little bit Yeah, the nicer. superstar football player that's actually really so sensitive. So that's, that's yeah. what I think is really interesting about it, is taking these stereotypes and almost how, and this is going to maybe be a weird comparison, but how they, a while ago, took all of the Disney stories and fairy tales and turned them into... You're going to compare it to End of the Woods. Kind of. But yeah. like how they turn them into dark fairy tales. Like you take a princess and then you turn her into a more realistic person of all the traits that people see on the outside and idolize how those are actually twisted and... Yeah, like what if the popular jock and the popular girl are together, but what if he's abusing her? Like stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, or not even that, but like how did the popular jock get to be the way he is? And yeah. how did Maddie end up with this attitude or... How did Cassie end up having this Reputation sexual and, history yeah. and what's driving that and, and what are those people feeling? Because a lot of times you look at them and just like with, with Maddie and Cassie, like before you got to their episodes and explored their backstory, you saw them in other people's episodes and you kind of just like, oh, that's just like a bimbo or that's just, <laughs> that's just the cool girl. That's just the click at school, like the plastics from Mean Girls or whatever. And then when you get into their histories and everything, you realize that they're just people. They're sympathetic and have their own motivations for things. So that's what I liked about it. I liked the deep dive into the characters. But you were just less forgiving about some of the confusing lack of narrative that the, kind of permeated the yeah, show. Yeah, and kind of Rue, I like Rue and I like her character, but her whole overarching story was great because it connected all of the episodes together, but it also made it more confusing and... Well, she's kind of an unreliable narrator in Yeah, a way. and like that's cool to see play out, but I think I just need another season to like understand it more because I was so taken aback by the structure of it and the content of it that it you kind of need to watch it again when you're desensitized to all the crazy stuff that's happening and watch it again for just what it is and understand I mean, there are moments that are more. filmed beautifully, too. It's like it it has, not only is the narrative kind of chopped up, but it's also extremely well shot. And the shot, and the way that it's shot gives it a dreamlike or, or almost a nightmare-like at some points quality. Yeah, and I think that's because that's how Rue perceives things. Things right. are dramatic and extreme one way or the other. She either sees things as depressing and horrible or very manic character yeah, very manic character and, so and I, the performances are all really good too jacob elordi as nate who i don't recall seeing in anything before i thought he was fantastic i thought hunter schaefer as jules was great yeah all the actors were great yeah i think all of these all of these actors are really good actors and i thought that that was the crowning jewel of the show 
is that it presents complicated issues in a complicated way, and it leads you down a really interesting social discovery of what it means to be a teenager or, or in your early 20s in 2019. And it gives it to you in a really beautiful, surrealist kind of way with really good acting. So like on paper for me, this show really works. And I agree with you, some of the narratives botched and the finale wasn't good. But I actually really liked this this season. Mainly, I'm, I'm willing to watch the second season. Yeah, I, I mean, I would totally watch the second season. Like I said, there was a group of four episodes or so where this was really in its groove where I, I really loved this show. And, and I acknowledged the kind of experimental like faults that it has, but I would I would score I would score it exactly the same as I would score the third season of Stranger Things. I would give them both four out of five. I would give Euphoria four yeah, out of I five. Yeah, I would definitely give it lower than what I would rate Stranger Things. I'm just not as invested. Right. I, I would say I'm equally as invested in both. Uh, it's about the same for me. Alright. Alright, thanks for listening. Uh, next episode will be a movie-related episode. Probably cover some Quentin Tarantino with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and some other releases. We'll talk to you then.